My name is Ryan Hill. I do, I'm the manager of interpretive programs. I do something called Friday Gallery Talks, and these are half-hour talks that happen every Friday at 12.30. It's not just me doing it. I, I actually manage the program, but we bring in guests, and these guests offer unique points of view, whether it's within the art field or outside of the art field, to talk about their relationship to art and the power of interpretation when we're looking at an object kind of one-on-one. -on -one. So these are usually small groups of people for about a half hour who look at one object with a, a guest speaker, and that happens every Friday unless we have what we're doing today which is called in conversation and in conversations are more intensive we have them in the auditorium because they usually involve slides we usually do them their conversations between an artist and another artist an artist and a curator an artist and myself um, sometimes we bring in other guest speakers um, people from outside the institution and uh, more and more we're trying to bring in um, people like uh, scientists um, philosophers, writers, to, talk, to give us a, a unique perspective on art. And so today we're really excited to have um, Margaret Livingstone, and she's a professor of neurobiology at Harvard Medical School. She studies vision with a focus on how the eye and brain use color and new, uh, luminance information, dyslexia, and processing. Here she comes. And she is the author of Vision and Art, the Biology of Seeing, and she firmly believes that art, artists make discoveries about how we see as much as scientists. I had a piece of information in her intro and she was like, no, that's, that's, she doesn't agree with that uh, at all. She really sees that we all are investigating um, seeing and that artists are a big part of that. So thank you very much for coming today. Um, her book is, uh, she's going to talk about what, can art, what, what art can tell us about the brain. So. Yes, what art can tell us about the brain. So I'm a neurophysiologist, which means that I try to figure out how we see by recording from cells in, our, in the visual system. But I acknowledge that artists are also vision scientists, and sometimes artists make discoveries that are so fundamental that you can understand these discoveries in terms of the underlying neurobiology. So that's what I'm going to do is talk about the underlying neurobiology that some artists have uncovered. So for thousands of years, artists have known that you can portray things in the environment by making line drawings, and that's so intuitive that it's a little hard to realize that the world is not full of lines, the world is full of contours, and contours and lines are quite different things, and yet we see contours as lines and we see lines as contours. And a line drawing can be a very good representation of some part of the environment. And now, could I have the stage lights up, because I want to discuss, oh, here's my laser pointer. Goody. Can I have the, f the front lights up? Thank you. So, what color are these lines? This is easy, come on. What color is the wall? White, yellow, okay, this is an art group. Could we just say that it's white, right? But certainly, the wall isn't black, right? Thank you. But the lines look black. And you know that this projector doesn't project blackness, it projects light, right? So how come this looks darker than this? Why does that look black? So the reason, now we can have the lights back to kind of a middling stay awake state. The reason that this comes about is that your visual system is not an image transmission system. Your visual system is all about processing information. And the first and most fundamental stage of extracting information from the environment is called center surround. So these are signals from neurons in the eye responding to a spot of light. So you can see the, the, the cell fires a lot when the light is turned on. Paradoxically, if you make the spot bigger, the response gets worse. And Steve Kufler deduced that this is because cells in the retina are organized in such a way that they're excited by light in the center of their receptive field, but they're inhibited by light in the immediate surround. So you get a suppression of firing with a ring of light. And he called this center surround, and it is the first and most important stage in visual information processing. And just in case you don't believe me that your visual system is full of center surround cells, do you see all the little gray spots everywhere where you're not looking? Okay, don't worry about why it's where you're not looking, that's postgraduate. You see the little gray spots because center surround cells at the cross pieces have four bits of white in their inhibitory surround, and center surround cells here have only two. So these cells are more inhibited, that is less active, than cells here, so you see little gray spots. 
and there's an extra step in adding the surround in, so there's kind of a dynamic quality to the center surround interaction. I hope you see the little gray spots that are, this is a static image. So if you learn anything this noon, I hope you will learn that vision is information processing. It's not image transmission. It doesn't do you any good to transmit an image up to your visual cortex because there is nobody up there to look at an image. There are just neurons and neurons can either fire or not fire and that's all they do. So why is center surround information processing? Well, because center, if you have an image like this that's white on one side and dark on the other, center surround cells over here are not active because their centers aren't active. Center surround cells over here are inhibited. It's only the ones where there's a, where there's a discontinuity and a difference in the activity in the center and the surround that give you a signal. And so center surround cells turn a contour into a line drawing, which is why line drawings work so well. They're just skipping a step in visual information processing. And of course, a line drawing can be a very efficient way of conveying information. It also solves a problem that artists have been grappling with for centuries, which is that the whitest white reflects about 20 times as much light. Can we have the lights up kind of a middling bit just so that people don't fall asleep? I suppose since you guys aren't required to be here, you're probably more interested than the usual students that I get. Um, so the whitest white paint reflects 20 times as much light as the blackest black. And yet in a normal scene, you've got a range of lightnesses of several hundred fold or maybe even a thousand fold. And so how can a painter compress the range of luminances that's out there in the real world into his painting? And some of you are thinking, well, the real world is just full of pigments too. What's the difference? The world is three dimensional and light bounces off at different angles. So that gives you this much greater range of luminances than you get in a flat painting. So artists have grappled with this. We're not very sensitive to blue light, and so, um, and for some religious reasons, the, the Virgin Mary is always portrayed as having a blue gown. And so artists had the problem that there's not much luminance, not much reflection in blue compared to the lighter pigments, and they can't get this range of luminances to give you shape from shading in the Virgin Mary, because she's supposed to wear a blue dress. And so you can see that artists have grappled with this absolutely three-dimensional baby Jesus and flat Virgin Marys. According to the art historians, the first guy to really get it right was Leonardo. And he did it by lightening up the blues and darkening down the yellows. So he has this homogeneous sense of lightness across the entire image. But he couldn't possibly have got it right because there's hundreds of times more light coming in a window than there would be in the shadows of her dress. And yet, at most, there's a 20-fold difference in this painting. What he did was create the illusion of getting it right. And he did it using a technique called chiaroscuro, where you manipulate the relative lightnesses across the image, taking advantage of center surround cells. So here's an example of this. I hope this looks to you like a disc that's shaded from light at the top to dark at the bottom. It's not. The disc is a homogeneous gray. It's the background that's graded. A center surround cell can't tell the difference between increasing light to the center or decreasing light to the surround. So you can get effects like this. And of course, artists have known this a lot longer than us neuroscientists. It's called countershading. So something else that artists figured out long before us neuroscientists is that color and lightness can be treated independently. And I keep using this term lightness, and those of you in the art world should just say value, and I'll try to say value from now on because I forgot. But what I mean is, is how much light there is in, no matter what the color, independent of the color. So you have three cones, short, middle, and long, or blue, green, and red. You don't have very many blue cones, so we're not very sensitive to blue light. Like I said, that's why the Virgin Mary's robes were always dark. Luminance is the sum of these three cone receptors. Color is when you compare them, you subtract them. So in this image, this is the color version, this is the luminance version. Most color contrast borders also have a luminance contrast, but interesting things happen when you have equal, you can have a color contrast that has no luminance contrast. They, artists call it equal value and very peculiar things happen. When I was going to mention Anish Kapoor's uh, 
work because I think this dark blue that he uses take ad takes advantage of the fact that we really don't have very many blue cones. So you can see a lot of color but not much lightness. So artists have figured out that equal value has a very peculiar quality and one of the first artists that did it systematically was Monet. So this is Impression Sunrise. Uh, it's a painting after which an entire movement was named. And the sun is absolutely brilliant in the original. And I once got a small grant to go to Paris to measure the luminance in Impression Sunrise. And it turns out that the sun, despite the fact that it's absolutely vibrantly brilliant, is precisely the same luminance as the background. There is no luminance contrast. And I think it's the absence of luminance contrast that makes this sun seem to shimmer. Because the primate visual system, the human visual system, starts in the retina, goes on to the primary visual cortex, and then it divides into these two major pathways. And one of these major pathways cannot see color. So of course important things happen if you have equal luminance because at equal luminance, this pathway can't see anything. So these two parts of your vis visual system do quite different things. So if people get lesions in their ventral stream, they can't recognize objects. They can't recognize sometimes quite specific objects like faces or um, fruits and vegetables or tools. So that means that there are particular regions of the temporal lobe that are dedicated to processing these kinds of, fa of, of objects and color perception happens in this part of our, our visual system. The dorsal stream is evolutionarily older, so this part of our visual system is unique to primates. So most mammals have a, a, just a gray scale visual system, and they can see things like movement and depth and navigate through their environment and see things that are moving and predators and prey, but they can't see things in detail the way we primates can. So these are some drawings made by people who had lesions in their wear system, the dorsal stream. So it's for positional information, it's for spatial organization. So these patients were trying to draw a bicycle, a bicycle, a cross, and a clock. And you can see that they can get all the bits right, but the bits are in the wrong place, kind of like cubism. So not to say that Picasso had a parietal lobe lesion, but rather that he cottoned on to the idea that object perception and positional information can be treated independently. But for the, for the time being, what's important is that your ability to see motion, depth, spatial organization, and figure ground segregation are all carried by an evolutionarily old, colorblind part of your visual system. So if you have a red spot on a green background, your what system can see it, your where system sees a gray spot on a gray background, and you can tailor the brightness of the red so that it, it looks this, it's invisible to your, to your colorblind where system. And it's not the color that makes it weird. So for me, depending on the projector, this one now has that weird shimmery quality. And somewhere in here, that one, you see that weird quality? That's equal value. It has very strange properties. So now I want to try to convince you that your ability to see depth, spatial organization, and figure ground segregation are carried by a colorblind part of your visual system. So the world looks three-dimensional, right? Now, of course, it is three-dimensional. I know that. But you see it as three-dimensional using two flat retinal images. So you have to compute distance and depth from two flat images. And your visual system uses all kinds of information to do that relative motion, shading, perspective, things in front of each other, and stereopsis, which I'm going to talk about at the end. So what I want you to do now is look at this image and think about the amount of depth you can see in the image, and then I want you to close one eye. Now, does everybody have these glasses? Good, hey. Yeah, see, I, I don't know how people always manage to sneak in without the glasses. So what I want you to do is close one eye and look through the red lens with the open eye and see if this thing doesn't look more three-dimensional. Okay, one eye, red lens, right? Okay, now put the glasses down. Did it look more three-dimensional? Okay, glasses down. I'm not gonna go in. Okay. Now, first look at this and think about 
there should be a lot of depth cues from perspective, there's a lot of figure ground segregation going on and it's kind of hard to even figure out what this thing is doing. Now I want you to close one eye and look at this thing with through the red lens and again I hope you see a lot more depth I hope you can see the thing. So what, what you're doing by looking through the red lens is eliminating the blue light, which is taking what is essentially an equal value image into a luminance contrast image. And so you're introducing depth cues that you couldn't see otherwise. All right, glasses down. Now this is, a, this is part of a series by Lichtenstein that was uh, entitled the Rouen Cathedral. And it doesn't much look like a Rouen Cathedral until you close one eye and look at it through the red lens. So I think he was playing with equal value here. Okay, glasses down. So if shape from shading is carried by a colorblind part of your visual system, the corollary, and you have to have a luminance contrast in order to see shape from shading, the corollary is that it doesn't matter what the color is. You get perfectly good shape from shading even if the colors are weird. And this is Andre Durand's portrait of Matisse with bizarre colors in the shadows, but it looks just like Matisse because even though the colors are weird, the luminance is just right to give you a sense of three-dimensionality. And Matisse's lady in a hat, similarly. Bizarre colors, but reality is there in the luminance alone. The color is used symbolically. So now I want to convince you that your ability to see motion is colorblind. I had a demo that didn't work, I'm sorry. So your ability to see motion is carried by a colorblind part of your visual system. So that means that your ability to see that things are stationary is also carried by a colorblind part of your visual system. I think again Monet managed to get a sense of movement in his paintings by having equal value poppies on green fields. And I know that Mondrian, I don't know if Monet knew he was achieving a sense of motion, but I know Mondrian did because he called this thing Broadway Boogie Woogie. And it jumps around because the yellow checks are just about equal value with the white background. So your what system can see them, but your where system can't tell where they are. So they can jump around. Was that a... It's also hard to read equal value writing, and advertisers do it all the time. You cannot open Wired magazine without seeing something like this, right? And it's nasty, it's unpleasant to look at, but it also gets your attention, which of course is what advertisers want. And it's hard to read, which I'll get to later. So achieving a sense of motion in a painting is something that artists have been after a long time. This is Poussin's Rape of the Sabine Women, but the longer I look at it, the more static it seems. It doesn't seem to have a real dynamic quality. But if you look at some of Monet's paintings, you get a really strong sense of motion. I especially like the motion that you see down here in the corner, which he gets by having little dabs of black, blue, white, and mustard. And there's a psychologist in Japan who managed to multiply this effect quite a bit. This is a static image. Little, little dabs of black, blue, white, and yellow. And what the re we think the reason that you see this odd, unpleasant motion is that it, the luminance difference between the black and the blue and the white and the yellow cause differences in timing in your visual system and differences in timing can be seen as motion. Here's a more peaceful version by the same uh, Kitioka. And this it's softer, isn't it? It's very pleasant. It's, you know, things that are high contrast are seen before low contrast and things tend to flow into the higher contrast. I think there's a little bit of this going on in, in the painting you have upstairs. This is Hiroshima by Eve Klein and I think that you get this same kind of odd, um, especially if you look at it and then look, when you first glance at it, you see this odd sense of motion from the difference in contrast. So now I want to talk about the fact that your computation of depth and distance is carried out by little local bits of your visual system. So it happens at a very low level, which means that you don't have to have these things be consistent across the whole image, and artists can get away with things that physicists couldn't. So for example, ordinarily shadows are cast because you have a light shining, but in a lot of early Renaissance paintings you have shadows going in completely incompatible directions. And this is uh, Edward Hopper 
you have a window that's casting light on this wall, but what happened to the... Don't know. Perspective. It's been known for a long time that converging lines give you a sense of depth, but you can have local depth that isn't globally compatible and it takes quite a while to figure out something's even wrong. And I found this painting of a Madonna that's, that's like an uh, impossible triangle because you're seeing the roof from below here and from above here. Magritte likes to play with it. This is occlusion cues that are locally reasonable but globally incompatible. And, right. This is, I like this one, Vermeer. So you have this nice shiny brass bowl, which is, appears shiny because it's reflecting what's going on in the tablecloth below it, but if you look closely, you will see that what's reflected on the bowl has nothing to do with what's actually below it. So I hope I've convinced you that your ability to, to compute depth and motion and spatial organization, there's something I'm not doing quite right here. Are carried by a colorblind part of your visual system, that they're local computations, and we don't have to abide by the rules of physics because they're generally obeyed. So you don't have to check on them. Now I want to talk about the fact that color is coarse. Your ability to see color is actually very low resolution because color cells have big, sloppy, receptive fields. You have low acuity in pure color, whereas you have higher acuity because you have smaller receptive fields in luminance. So, you do not have to color inside the lines. And of course, artists have figured this out. Here's an illusion based on this. There's a, three beautiful paintings at the MoMA that show this beautifully. The, there are three black frames with little thin colored lines inside of them, and it looks like the white inside is three different colors, but it's not. <clears throat> I bet you, you think that this yellow, this white, is different from this white, right? It looks yellow. It's not. This is exactly the same white as this and this. This is a blue line and a yellow line. The color spreads until it hits a border because color is sloppy. See? So what I want to do is I want to create some after images so that you'll have some sloppy color that you can watch it flow until it hits a border, okay? And what I want you to do is look right at this intersection, okay? And then I'm going to put up a homogeneous gray background and you maybe saw a little bit of an after image. Now look at the intersection again and see if you don't see a much better after image in this achromatic image. Now some of you are thinking, if you're a little bit sophisticated psychophysically, oh you did it twice, you just built up the after image. Let's do it again. Look at the intersection, evaluate the after image. Look at the intersection, evaluate the after image. Try looking at it again and see if the color will flow to fill in a completely different shape. And one more, watch the color, look at the intersection, watch the colors squirt out the hole. Here's another thing that artists figured out, <clears throat> at least empirically if not explicitly, which has to do with the resolution across your visual field. So this is a really famous painting, right? There's a, but there's a reason why people really like this painting. The Mona Lisa's expression seems to change so much she seems almost alive. And I want, you to, I want to blow this up so that you can do this with me. I want you to look at her eyes and think about how much she's smiling and then look at her mouth. Look back and forth between her eyes and her mouth and see if her expression doesn't systematically change. Isn't she smiling more when you're looking at her eyes than when you're looking at her mouth? And it's her mouth that's changing when you're looking at her eyes versus when you're looking at her mouth. So the art historians say that her, am I supposed to do something? The art historians say that her smile is blurry and it's ambiguous Therefore, it's up to your imagination whether she's smiling. But didn't you just convince yourself that it's not your imagination, it's where you're looking, right? Now that can't be just ambiguous. There's something systematic about it. And it has to do with the fact that your acuity differs across your visual field. So your central vision, where you're looking, is really good at seeing little tiny detailed stuff, which is why you read your eyes, move your eyes when you read. But your peripheral vision is better at seeing great big blurry things, and it's no good at seeing little tiny things. This is called high and low spatial frequencies. 
And if you filter the Mona Lisa in such a way that you can see what she would look like if you could see the whole thing with your peripheral vision, or the whole thing with your central vision, which of course you can't, but I can filter it that way, you see that she's smiling a whole lot more than she is in the high spatial frequencies. So as you move your eyes around this painting, and you naturally move your eyes constantly as you look at things, and we're going to get to that, as you move your eyes around, her expression changes systematically. And 500 years ago, achieving a dynamic quality in a static painting was something very special. Happens in photo mosaics. Your central vision sees the baseball cards. Your peripheral vision sees Babe Ruth. And as you move your eyes around, different parts come in and out of baseball cards or Babe Ruth, and that gives this a dynamic and very pleasing quality. Now, you move your eyes around constantly as you look at images. This is measuring somebody's eye position as he looks at this picture. <clears throat> if you don't move your eyes around, the image fades because your visual system is all about contours, either in space or in time. And if you stop moving your eyes, if you stabilize the image on your retina, you actually go blind. It's called, a, it's called image fading or a whiteout if you've ever been in a snowstorm a really bad snowstorm, and where there are no sharp contours, suddenly you find you can't see anything. And I think that some works of art take advantage of this. I think Mark Rothko has cottoned onto this. Because in a Rothko painting, first of all, you're supposed to stay very close to them. If you, in, in rooms that he has designed, like at the Phillips Gallery, you can't get far enough away from these paintings that they don't fill your whole visual field. And the edges are all blurry. So what happens is the colors start mingling with each other as your vision fades. And that's a very disconcerting and therefore interesting phenomenon. And lots of them are equal lumen, but even, and so equal luminance makes fading happen faster. But even when they're not, you can still get, if you're very close to it, and looking right at the center, you can still get the colors flowing into each other simply because your visual system can't see any contours anymore. I think that the, the Wolfgang Leib work that you have right down the hall can do that in a similarly disconcerting way. So now I want to talk about how we see objects. How do we process objects? We don't make pictures of objects down in our temporal lobe, even though that's the part of our visual system that's used for recognizing objects. We must be extracting information about objects because that's how the brain sees. There's no images up there, right? It's all about what neurons are firing and what they're coding. So we are very good, us primates, at seeing faces. So you're seeing these faces in 100 milliseconds, a tenth of a second, and yet you're not only detecting some of these faces, you're recognizing who these people are, right? That's, it. That's an impressive thing to do, considering how similar faces are to each other. And you can even recognize individuals based on highly degraded, distorted, um, occluded images. And you can do this much better than any computer program that DARPA has come up with. So you are a very good face processor. And artists have figured out something about the way we process faces. We know this because artists often make caricatures. And a caricature is easier to recognize who it's of than a veridical line drawing. So here are some caricatures of two individuals. And I bet you you had an easier time recognizing the caricature than you did recognizing the actual line drawing of the, of the photograph. Why is a caricature so evocative of an identity? Well, we've been asking that question by Looking at, so as I said, there are parts of your temporal lobe that are specific for recognizing faces. If you lose it, you can't recognize faces, and all the cells in here are active when someone looks at faces. And we can record from these cells. And here's a, a face space that we use to ask, how do face cells code faces? How do you code identity? And so we have all these variables that have to do with face shape, which way the face is looking, what the eyes look like, what the mouth looks like, what the hair looks like, and so on. And we vary these systematically and show them to a face cell. And you can see that we get way outside the realm of a normal primate. 
and we vary all these parameters at the same time and we say what do face cells care about? So if face cells each code an individual face and we have like 11 to the 27th faces here, we'd never figure it out. But it turns out the faces just care about variables. And each face cell codes for two or three of these parameters. And if you have a cell that cares about inter-eye distance, you could imagine that you'd have a bunch of cells, each of which peaked at some particular inter-eye distance, but that's not what we found. What we found was that there were a smaller number of cells, let's say two for argument's sake, one of which coded for really big inter-eye distances and the other of which coded for very small. And so you get these two extremes and you get everything in the middle for free by the ratio of those two cells firing. So that means that face cells care about extremes. They care about how does a face differ from an average face. So now this is, this is a face adaptation effect. What I want you to do while I try to stall you for about 30 seconds is look up and down at these five dots. And what you're going to be doing is adapting to these, these two faces. And so you're not going to be getting a local after image, which is why you're going up and down instead of just um, staring at a spot. And what you're doing is adapting all your opponent, big eye, small eye, big hair, small hair, big mouth, small mouth cells. And you're just adapting them so they get a little bit tired. And now I'm going to go to this, these two identical morphs. Did you have an identity after image? Now it's fading and you're saying, wait, did I really? So what you were doing was adapting to an entire identity, which is a very high level process. And it tells you that these cells are in opposition. And it tells you that, that cells in the face patch code for extremes. That's why caricatures work. Because a caricature tells you how somebody differs from the average. So I bet you've seen some of these Picasso portraits, but I bet you never know, knew who they were of and that they actually really are caricatures of the person they were of. So this is his girlfriend, Marie Theresa. I think you have, no, it was at the MoMA. His uh, guy he roomed with, this is Picasso himself, this is his art dealer, his mother-in-law, one of his wives, the wife of a friend, another wife, Igor Stravinsky. They're caricatures, aren't they? So even looking at art from children can tell us something about the way we process information. So you ask any three-year-old child to draw a person and you will get a face with legs, right? Invariably. What's important about a person? What is important about the identity? It's their face. That's a really important thing to us as social animals and that's, that's the information we code and the information we store about who people are. As the child gets older, you'll get a body but it's always much smaller than the head. And I found this, oh, and sometimes you'll get fingers and toes. They're important. Sometimes you'll get fingers, but you never get toes. Toes aren't important. Unless the child is severely retarded. This is from an artistic, autistic savant child who didn't process the information. So sometimes in art school, you'll find the teachers saying, draw what you see, not what you think you see. This child is drawing what she sees because she doesn't think about what she sees. And I think some art, veridical photo-like art is drawing what you see, but I think that sometimes the more interesting art is seeing what someone is thinking, what someone is processing. So now the last thing I want to talk about is stereopsis, which is uh, another depth cue. So you need to look at this with blue on the right. Yeah, okay? So some of you don't have stereopsis. Don't take it personally. We'll talk about that later, okay? Both eyes open, blue on the right, okay? And that's stereopsis. It's just geometry. If you're focusing at an object on a plane, objects that are nearer or farther away cast images on non-corresponding parts of the retina and your visual system uses that difference to compute depth. Now, as I said, it's one of many depth cues, but it's a fun one. If you've seen Avatar, it's fun. But if you go to a museum, here we are at a museum. Now, this museum's very three-dimensional, but if you look at a bunch of the flat paintings on a wall, and the artist has gone to a lot of trouble to portray monocular depth cues, that is non-stereo depth cues like shape and shading, shape from shading, perspective, occlusion. 
your stereo system is saying, well, yeah, but it's really flat. And so you're contradicting the artist's hard work. So if you want to feel like you're inside a painting, close one eye. And you have to get it so that it fills your visual field, but you close one eye, the painting will look more three-dimensional. But stereo matching is computationally difficult. So this, don't, not yet, okay, just wait. If I tell you that blue is white to the right eye and red is white to the left eye, can you tell me what this shows? Okay, use your stereo glasses, blue on the right. Some of you will see that this shows quite clearly something. And others won't, don't worry if you don't see it. So stereo matching is a difficult problem. If you have four identical images in the real world, you will get four identical images on your two retinas and your visual system has to figure out which image in the right eye matches up with which image in the left eye. And you could get the right answer or you could get mismatched cues that would correspond to the same image but at a different depth plane. So if you have ever misstepped at an escalator, you did that because escalators have slats that can be misfused and give you a different answer about where they really are. So it's not, it's not your fault with the escalator. I think some artists took advantage of this and made paintings that look more three-dimensional to two eyes because you misfuse the little dabs of paint. And I find, uh, so the Impressionists said they were painting the air, that's how they were doing it. And I find this painting by Klimt so unpleasant, I don't like to look at it because it undulates to me in depth as my eyes mismatch the leaf patterns. Which is funny because Klimt himself didn't have stereopsis. How do I know? Look at his eyes. Man's cross-eyed, right? If you're cross-eyed or wall-eyed, you cannot compute stereopsis because you have to get the images to the same, from the two eyes to the same place in your visual cortex. And if your eyes are misaligned, they don't go to the same place. I mean, they go somewhere, but they don't go to the same place at the same time. So people whose eyes are misaligned don't have stereopsis. They have other ways of seeing depth, but they don't, don't have stereopsis. I got interested in the question of stereopsis and artistic talent because I did some research on dyslexia, which is learning disability, people who are intelligent but have trouble learning to read. They say that black and white text shimmers, it has this nasty quality that I attribute to equiluminant text. So I, so I did some research that established that people with dyslexia have a slight timing difference in their wear system. And what are the properties of the wear? Motion, depth, spatial organization, and figure ground segregation. Well, what are the characteristics of dyslexia besides problems learning to read? Positional information problems, figure ground problems, and trouble gauging distance and depth. So I, I was privileged to meet a number of people with dyslexia who an astonishing number of them were very talented artists, musicians, computer programmers, and actors. And every, it, it's, it's pretty well established that there's a disproportionate number of dyslexics in the artistic population, but the usual explanation is that they were no good at the regular subjects, so they spent all their time in the art room. But these people are so talented that you have to consider the possibility that there's some benefit to being dyslexic, to being an artist. And what about the idea that trouble gauging distance and depth might be an asset to an artist. I can't draw a chair, because I can't flatten it. I have all this 3D information that I can't flatten it onto, onto a page the way it's already flat on my retina. Maybe somebody who already sees the world as a little bit flatter is gonna have an easier time of it. So we started looking at famous artists to find out whether they might have trouble seeing distance and depth. Here's Chuck Close, his eyes, his glasses have a different magnification in the two eyes, he's dyslexic, and he says he sees the world as flat. So you can tell if somebody's eyes are lined up by looking at the little white spot on their, the, the reflection of light on their, on their eyes. So this guy could have stereopsis. He doesn't necessarily, 10% of otherwise normal people do not have stereopsis but he could have normal stereopsis. So, see the light reflex in the same place in the two eyes? You gotta get good at this, okay? You see the light reflex, the same place in the two eyes? There is one baseball player who had no stereopsis. 
Ah, so you see it. His eyes are not lined up, are they? This is Babe Ruth. The light reflex is in the center in this eye and off to the side in this eye. He had amblyopia. So one eye was deviated out and he lost vision in that eye as a consequence. 3% of the population has significantly misaligned eyes. So we looked at a bunch of photographs that we got from the National Portrait Gallery of famous artists where you could see both eyes. We found like 60 famous artists. You would expect from this number that one or two of them would have severely misaligned eyes. We found 16. So here's some famous artists who have no stereopsis. Carol Walker, light reflexes in completely different places in her two eyes. She works in silhouettes, totally flat. Andrew Wyeth, this eye is looking at this eye is looking at you, this eye is looking out that. And his father, N.C. Wyeth, was also strabismic and also an illustrator. Edward Hopper, see the light reflex is in two different places on his two eyes. I don't know about the dog. Mark Chagall was cross-eyed. Frank Stella was cross-eyed. Jasper Johns was wall-eyed, eyes deviating outwards. Robert Rauschenberg was wall-eyed and severely dyslexic. Alexander Calder is wall-eyed. Man Ray. Frank Lloyd Wright. Now, you are allowed to diagnose misalignment from a photograph. Obviously, you really shouldn't be doing this with a painting because you paint the eyes at different points in time and the eyes could move. But I was at the Louvre, there's this little room that has four Rembrandt self-portraits. Every single one of them shows him as having one eye deviating out. Now that could be a trope, but it could also be something real. Now I know you paint a self-portrait looking in a mirror and you look, at your right, you look to the right when you're painting your right eye, you look to the left when you're painting your left eye, but this is what I look like when I'm looking in a mirror with two mon this montage, this looking at the right eye, this looking at the left. My eyes are deviated a little bit. You can see the light reflex isn't in the same place, but not the way Rembrandt portrays himself, right? He's really got a seriously misaligned eye there. So is it always the same eye? If it was always the same eye, you might say it's a stylistic thing. But sometimes it's the eye on this side, and sometimes it's the eye on this side. And I have a younger colleague who is an artist, and he said, Marge, you have to separate them into paintings and etchings. And when you do that, you discover that in the paintings, it's always this eye that deviates out. In the etchings, it's always this eye. And of course, you make an etching by flipping, right? So the fact that it's, that it's always the reverse in the two eyes, we, we did this uh, quantitatively. We made a circle with Photoshop and plotted where the eyes were. So here's a bunch of paintings by Rembrandt. There's the eye on the right is looking at you. The eye on the left is deviating out, except in this painting, we think this might be evidence that this one's a fake or was made from an etching, and the etchings are the reverse. So we think that Rembrandt also had strabismus and portrayed exactly what he saw. And the take home message from this is if, if, if a kid has misaligned eyes, uh, first of all, you want to go to the doctor, you don't want them to get amblyopic, but it might, you, you don't need to have poke out an eye in order to be a great artist, you just close one eye, and also that if you can make a graph of the unlikeliest thing, you can get it published. So, <laughs> if you take home anything, I hope you remember vision is information processing. And different parts of your visual system do different things. And some of the most evolutionarily basic part of our vision is, is colorblind. You don't have to color inside the lines and people are different. And something that one person may be good at may, may make them bad at something else and vice versa. And I would be happy to answer questions. Eric. So, so thank you. Mm. Can we, we, we'd like to record your question. So I'm going to answer his question, but I'll, I'll restate. He, what about Babe Ruth? How could he have been such a great baseball player? I slightly misled you by saying, I didn't really say baseball players need stereopsis, right? I kind of implied it, but it isn't true because you, you start your swing when the pitcher lets go of the ball, and the ball is so far away at that point in time you don't use stereo to see it. So you plan your swing when the ball is too far away for stereo to be of any use.
Babe Ruth had amblyopia, was blind in one eye. He probably had hyperacuity in his good eye because all of the visual cortex was dedicated to that one eye instead of being split up between two eyes. There will never be another Babe Ruth because you now cannot get into the major leagues without perfect vision in both eyes, which in my opinion is a stupid rule. Do we have another question? Um, you talked about how um, the fact that your uh, grayscale visual processing happens in a certain part of the brain, it helps with depth and all the other stuff that's going on in that part of the brain. So do you know anything about color maybe helping with object processing and face processing? And have you seen that in any art? So why did we evolve color vision? Yeah, okay, so only, only primates have good color vision. Only old world primates, that is us and great apes and, and rhesus macaque monkeys, have trichromatic color vision. Why did we even evolve that? Sexual selection, social signaling, ripe fruit, young leaves, those are the ideas that are out there. So I don't know the answer, but it's a very recent evolutionary change. Great. Another question? Is there a hand up? Processing. It's not an image transfer. We process the information from the image itself. Yes. We don't. There's no image up right. there. Right. Exactly. So at the time when we think of an image, not see. Ooh. Right. Do we actually do the same process or that's different part, totally different uh, uh, so vision is, vision is hierarchical in that information comes into the eye, it goes into the primary visual cortex, then it goes through a series of processing stages. Right, right. These processing stages are all feed-forward feedback. There's reciprocal connections. And so you have a lot of feedback information and you do activate quite low visual areas when you do mental imagery. So people have done functional imaging of people right. rotating things in their heads, and yes, you activate quite early visual cortex. You don't go down to the retina or the midbrain. Exactly, yeah, we don't need, we don't, because it comes from within the brain itself, yeah. but we still yes, exactly. use uh, similar processes to uh, um, bring that image which we think of rather than see. Exactly, you do. Thank you. But it's just neurons firing. There's no image up there, right. just neurons, patterns of neurons, populations uh, of neurons firing. Ah, I love dreams, yes. <clears throat> so dreams are just neurons firingly random. It seems like it really happens, but that's because reality is just neurons firing. That's why dreams are so realistic. They're just neurons firing. They're no different from reality. You've, you've looked at artists who have defects in their vision, but I'm wondering if you've looked at art historians and correlated those who have defects in their vision with their areas of study. I'm thinking no, I of... I never have. This is hard enough, believe me. Well, I was thinking of someone like Teresio Pignati, who is severely wall-eyed, and I'm wondering, did he favor color over line because he was wall-eyed or because he was Venetian? <laughs> I have no idea. You wouldn't believe how hard this is to do from the get-go. You have to have a big enough population. I was astonished at the number of artists who were strabismic. I just had a question about the emotional value of color. Is it learned or is there something inherent mm. in a color that somebody sees that might have a different emotional response to the color? I think it's all learned, frankly. That's my opinion, though. We don't know. How would we know? Okay, ah, wait, there are certain things, no. Because cross-culture could give you some erroneous commonality simply from the fact that we're all, we all have common experience living in the same world. So we all bleed when we get cut. Red, alarm, danger. Is that innate or did we all experience the same color when we had alarm and danger? So I don't know. How, I'm a rather big fan of experience-dependent um, plasticity as opposed to innateness. But that's my own bias. But I do have, in my opinion, very good reasons for thinking this. So when you put that image up, um, where we, we all looked at this with, through our glasses, and I didn't see whatever it was that was okay. going on there. OK, that was a random um, dot stereogram. First of all, they're hard to learn to fuse. They're not quite as hard as magic eye images, but they're tough. 
And so if you've never done that before, with a little practice, you probably could, unless you don't well, have stereopsis. Well, that was going to be um, my question, is that I've also never been able to see a magic eye image, you know, in the paper and yes, stuff. Yes, right. And I'm wondering if that is the same thing. Okay, 10% of otherwise perfectly normal people have no stereopsis. And so I have a young colleague who, who discovered he was stereo blind when he was in graduate school, but he's also an artist. And so he knows all about stereo. And I said, he, he, I said, what do you see differently than other people? Can you figure it out? And he said, well, you know, as far as I can tell, the thing that really throws me that doesn't seem to throw other people is threading a needle. But he uses all the other depth cues to get around, and he didn't even know that he was stereo blind. On the other hand, my husband lost stereopsis as an adult. He can't stop tripping over curves, gray on gray because he, used, he, he grew up learning to, so if you grow up without stereo and you don't have stereo, there's no problem. But magic eyes are hard to see because the guy who invented them perversely arranged it so that you have to have your eyes looking parallel instead of converged. What you're doing is you're mismatching these, these panels so that they go like that and cause stereo depth. So you're, 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 mis, you're, you're, you're fusing two adjacent panels. And it would be much easier if you could cross your eyes and fuse them instead of do this. So there is a real trick to seeing those, which has to do with putting something shiny on it and focusing on the reflection. So unless you've sat down with, a, with red green glasses and a nice simple stereogram and still can't see it, I wouldn't diagnose you as stereo blind. But if you are, you've been so since birth and who cares? Okay. <laughs> One last burning question. Anybody? Okay. It has to be burning. <laughs> a current uh, thing that's done in uh, ophthalmology and optometry is to give people monovision, either with contacts or with uh, LASIK surgery. Does that alter the stereopsis? A little, yeah. But it's not, it's not that probably that important because you still have stereo based on slight differences. So you'll have slightly different... Uh, you're not blind in either eye, you're just a little sharper in one eye than in the other, and you can still fuse and compute depth from that. It's not a problem. You'll compute depth with, with blurry as well as sharp edges. I, I have, I have a, just a, a quick question. Um, you said we were done with this. I know, I know, I always have to do this. But, but one of the things, um, and, I, and I know that we're at our time's end, but um, one of the things I'm curious about is the um, art community's reaction to your research, because the art, the art community's reaction to your research. Have you heard? There are several art schools that I have a, a every other year invitation to go talk at, <laughs> and they had me talk in the foundation courses. Yeah, I guess, yeah, and I think it's interesting because one of the things is about specialization of language. I'm kind of interested in that. Yes, exactly. That I find when we have these conversations where sci scientists and artists talk together, there's this thing about language that happens. Like, I find yeah, sometimes the but audience. I've learned will, the right words. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, no, also, no. Also, I really try hard not to have this. Um, arrogant scientific attitude that we can explain art. Instead, I say, you guys know stuff. You know really deep, important stuff. And if we can figure out a way to communicate, it turns out that I may be able to take some of your rules and give you general principles, which you may find useful, and you may tell me new stuff that I didn't know. So the fact that I actually think that artists are really smart and know stuff is novel in the scientific community, which is very sad. Okay, that's great. Well, thank you very much for coming. We appreciate you being here and starting this conversation.